E.D. ECMO episode 15, The Cheer Trial, and the second part of our interview with Dr. Stephen Bernard. Yeah, so thank you again, everybody, for joining us for the next episode, the next edition of the ED ECMO podcast. This is episode 15, and in this episode, we're going to discuss the cheer trial just released, just published, and on the heels of a discussion we had last week with Dr. Stephen Bernard, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Zach Shiner, and we're going to go through the cheer trial, and then we're also going to touch up on some of the further discussion we had with Dr. Bernard in relationship to that trial. First off couple of housekeeping issues. First, if you can and you want to, come on over to the website and join our mailing list. That's going to give you information and we're going to give you updates that you just won't get as a member of the podcast. Enter your email into that, into that location and we will uh, send you updates. Number two, next week, October 21st, is the Bring Me Back to Life conference in Montreal. Uh, hop on over to the website at edegmo.org slash 15 to get more information on that. And lastly, next month, big deal, we have the Essentials of Emergency Medicine. This is the Mel Herbert Show. Come on out. We're going to be there. San Francisco, we've got a whole Saturday morning. It's me, Shiner, and Weingart. Don't miss it. Now, on to the podcast. No, Joe, I'm not letting you get away that easy. Next month as well, American Heart Association, Joe Beleza will be giving a talk on ECMO. If you're there in Chicago, we will both be there, and it should be fantastic. 7.30 Monday morning if you are there. I'm going to cut in here for just a second. Zach's referring to the RESS Scientific Symposium. That's the Resuscitation Symposium through the American Heart Association. And I will be there at 7.30 in the morning on Monday, November 17th, talking about implementation of eCPR in a U.S. emergency department. Also that morning, eCPR in the pre-hospital environment, how to implement eCPR during an in-hospital cardiac arrest, and some pediatric ECMO pearls. All right, so let's jump into cheer. We talked to Stephen Bernard last week. It was just epic. I mean, he, yeah. is, he is such a superstar, huh? Yep. So, and Stephen Bernard, just to kind of refresh your memory, he's the guy that was involved with the initial hypothermia trials that were in the early 2000s that had us going down to 33 degrees. His tune has changed a little bit. He's now moving more towards the Nielsen 36 degrees, but we'll see this comes up in this paper. But they are now doing ECMO. And so at this hospital, the Alfred down in Australia, they have their ideal uh, approach here, this tr pilot trial called the CHEER trial. And this involves the use of ECMO with a couple other things. It's a bundle therapy. And this bundle includes, so ECMO is one, and then the three Cs, compression devices, cardiac catheterization, and intra-arrest cooling. Okay, so those three things. And so the title of this paper is Refractory Cardiac Arrest Treated with Mechanical CPR, Hypothermia, ECMO, and Early Reperfusion. And that constitutes the CHEER acronym, C-H-E-E-R. And just one more thing. Let's give a little bit of a shout out to the primary author of this paper is Dion Stubb. Obviously, Stephen Bernard is a big figure in the resuscitation world, but he wasn't the only one involved in this study. So Dr. Stubb, great job, and uh, as well as the other authors on this paper. 
Yes, absolutely true. And so what we want to do today is we want to talk through the trial. We want to talk about a little bit about what are the similarities about what we do and then some of the differences in how we are running our ECMO in San Diego versus how they're doing it there. So Joe, take us through the methods. What happened? What did they do? Yeah, so first of all, they based the whole premise on the idea that in their pre-hospital setting, the medics would show up on scene. This is before cheer. This is before they were doing this trial. Medics would show up on scene and they would work their patients for 30 minutes. And if they didn't get return of spontaneous circulation within 30 minutes, in most cases, unless there was a compelling reason to continue, they would discontinue CPR at that point and pronounce the patient. Cheer changed a lot of that. And what Cheer did was created a bundle therapy. And we'll get to the bundle in just a second. But that bundle up front pre-hospital included putting the patient on a mechanical circulatory device, in this case, the Zoll Autopulse, and then began intra-arrest cooling pre-hospital en route. And then when the patient hit the door in the emergency department, they started ECMO. And simultaneously, they notified their cath lab, and they would then get the patients for what they call early revascularization, which means they go right to the cath lab. Just as a quick aside, one of the important things about this particular paper, it's not a randomized controlled trial. This is a pilot study, but this isn't that much different from what we're doing in San Diego as well. It's hard when you've got a therapy that you believe works and you have to withhold that because of an RCT. So what they're doing and what we've been doing just short of an RCT is comparing patients who would have been already declared dead and comparing those going forward from that point forward with your study subjects. So in our case, in San Diego, what we're doing is we're doing ACLS. And at the point where the doctor would pronounce the patient dead, we're then putting those patients on ECMO and seeing our outcomes. So our comparison group is tough. We shouldn't be comparing the survival rate really of uh, the patient who didn't versus the patient who did get CPR. It would almost be fair to compare your survival rate with patients who were declared dead. So in our case, we sort of believe we're getting 100% recovery. And that's a bit of a stretch. We need an RCT, no question about it. But they've done kind of the same thing. They've had their start point be at the 30-minute mark. At that point, they're then transporting the patients to the emergency department. Very similar to what we're trying to do. So next, inclusion criterion. So for the out-of-hospital arrest, this is very similar to the inclusion criterion that we use when we published our stuff. First, age 18 to 65 years of age. Next, cardiac arrest due to a suspected cardiac etiology. Next, chest compressions were commenced within 10 minutes by bystander or EMS. Next, initial cardiac arrest rhythm was V-fib. We actually include pulseless VTAC and uh, unstable VTAC in that, but, and as well sometimes PEA, but this is a reasonable start point. Next, mechanical CPR machine available. And what they're referring to here in the out-of-hospital arrest is their mechanical CPR machine is available on the rigs. And again, they're using Zoll autopulses, which have been placed on their rigs, and they're showing up on scene with those devices. Now, they've also included in the study group in-hospital cardiac arrest, and that gets, uh, gets into a little bit of importance when you're looking at their overall outcomes and their numbers. And one... Um, mitigating issue here is that the inclusion criterion for the in-hospital arrests were 
the discretion of the treating doctor. And one potential problem with the overall trial here is that that can create a little bit of selection bias. Now, the way that they did this, they use a team that's a little bit different than us, and we're just going to run through this briefly. First, they have two critical care physicians, two intensivists who show up in their emergency department. At our facility, we have emergency doctors who typically initiate this, but they have two intensive care doctors who are trained in cannulation and come down to their ER. Per the discussion we had with Dr. Bernard last week, they basically have one intensivist who is placing both cannulas. The second intensivist is typically acting as an assistant, handing off lines, holding wires. We have done this as well, but up until today or up until our discussion with Dr. Bernard, we have not had the same doctor doing the right femoral vessel and then reaching over and doing the left femoral vessel. And it sounds like that's what they're doing. And if you listen to our discussion with Dr. Bernard, it sounds like that's how they run things. Next, they use an additional physician to do ultrasound. And what they're doing there is they're ultrasounding the IVC after the wire is placed and before the cannula is placed. And the point there is to ensure that they're in the right vessel before they start to dilate. I think that's a fantastic idea, and it's an idea that we're going to start employing in our place. They use an extra third physician for that. I think we can probably get by with our two physicians, but we haven't done it yet, so that will be yet to be seen. Next, they have an ECMO nurse coordinator. We very similarly have two ECMO nurses show up, both priming the circuit and getting things ready to connect the tubing to create the circuit. And lastly, they use a senior physician who is allocated as the code team leader. We do something very similar. Most of you out there use a a physician code team leader. We began using a nurse code team leader in order to allow the physician who's running the code to cognitively offload his thought processes so he or she can better run the code and just think through what's going on and manage the whole team. Okay, so those are some of the similarities and some of the discrepancies between our two protocols. There's one last thing that I think is a big deal in this trial, and it it really is something that we're going to have to look at and work on through the, the next few years. But they are using smaller cannulas than we use. They're using 15 French arterials, 17 French venous, and this is quite a bit smaller than what we use, and it creates quite a bit less flow. So we're talking about rather than the usual five liters per minute, we're talking about two and a half to three liters per minute. So the background here is that the guys at the Alfred and some of our CT surgeons are also coming around to this train of thought is that in older folks who have poor vasculature and have calcified vessels and are usually and often obese, it's sometimes easier to place smaller cannulas. Those smaller cannulas would amount to, in the hands of the Alfred folks, a 15 French arterial cannula and a 17 French venous cannula. They think it's a bit easier to place them. They think that they're going to need support for a shorter period of time in these patients who are cardiac arrest patients who typically just need to get to the cath lab. We've had cases of patients who have lasted longer on pump and have benefited from the larger cannulas and the larger flow. But a little more on that right now from Zach. So when we talk about ECMO, we usually lump everything together as this one approach. But in this situation, I think we're actually dealing with a pretty different therapy. 
And so this becomes important to see how well they did. So on this, in this area, you're, you're saying, okay, I'm going to give them a certain amount of flow. It's going to be less than what's ideal, but I'm hoping that their heart will quickly come back and they'll be able to recover from this cardiac arrest. So in their data, and this is how we're going to now get into the results section, in their data, the patients who did not survive, they only were on the pump for one day. The survivors stayed on the pump for three days. Now, this is less than what we see at our institution. We're talking about usually five days before we have a good idea of whether we're going to take them off the pump or not. Although we have had our patients within the first couple hours where we say this is not salvageable. Joe, what do you think about that idea? Well, I think that this is a learning process for all of us. Uh, You know, we don't have neuroprognosticators yet. We don't have a way of knowing 100% whether or not the patient's going to have a good outcome. And we've all had several cases where you thought, no way in hell they're going to survive. And then several days later, in some cases, they've had remarkable recoveries. So I, th- I think for us, it's reasonable to take this case by case. Dr. Bernard made a great point of identifying the, the no-go folks early on. And I think that that also plays into the concept that we can mitigate or decrease the number of long-term vegetable-type patients by identifying these patients early on. But my only, my only sort of teaching point here is give these patients a shot, and sometimes it takes a few days. Right. And I, so I would say that this chi- trial – leads us into this idea of a rapid deployable lower perfusion lower flow blood flow and then hoping for a rapid recovery whereas i would say much of the stuff that we do involves a longer time on the pump with bigger cardiac flows which one's better that's remain to be seen. Okay, so more back to the results. In the two groups, it's a little bit hard to tease out. We're talking about in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest here. In their results section, they don't break it down like that. They really break it down by the survivors and non-survivors putting the out-of-hospital and in-hospital cardiac arrest together. And so when we put them together, we have a discrepancy in the protocols. But I would just reiterate that this is a pilot study, and they're giving the information that they have following their algorithm as best as they can. Yeah, okay. So looking, though, at their out-of-hospital arrest, I would just – one minor criterion here is that they – it looks like they used an intention-to-treat type protocol and ended up putting what they're describing as nine patients – I should say 11 patients into their out-of-hospital arrest arm. Of those, two patients never got eCPR. One of them – had ROSC, at the time of cannulation, they decided not to put the patient on pump, and the other one failed cannulation, yet they still took him to the cath lab and uh, revascularized them. And they include those two patients in their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and, uh, and sort of eCPR arm when it looks like they never actually got eCPR. So I understand that. I understand why they did that. But if you're looking purely at the benefit of ECMO in these patients, then their real survivor rate is 3 of 11, not 5 of 11 if you take those two patients out. Now, that said, it's still a remarkable number. So over the historic course at our facility, in in in-hospital arrests, when you compare non-ECPR patients, those patients had a neurologically intact survivorship of 17%, whereas the patients who received ECMO or eCPR had 27%. That's in hospital. And if you look at their out-of-hospital arrest numbers here and you knock out those two patients, 
they have three of 11 patients, and what does that number equal? 27%. So they're actually still kicking ass because they're still getting out-of-hospital arrest eCPR patients' recoveries with neurointact, CPC1 or 2, neurointact patients at a rate that we're doing in our in-hospital cohorts. Now, I just want to point out here that my, my intention here was not so much to criticize the study because it's clear that the bundled therapy where the medics are going out in the field, plucking these potentially survivable and salvageable patients out of the pre-hospital setting, putting them on mechanical chest compression devices, cooling them, bringing them to the ER, and in both of these cases had attempted cannulations followed by transfer to their coronary catheterization laboratory, this does amount to a pretty significant success and does shine a positive light on their apparently highly successful bundle. So while the patients did not get eCPR, they still got the rest of the bundle and therefore it is certainly reasonable to include these patients in their outcomes. Now, before we move on to the last segment of this episode, I wanted to briefly discuss the actual cheer trial results and some of their implications. So first, over the course of 32 months, 26 patients were entered into their protocol. 11 of those were out of hospital cardiac arrests. 15 of those were in hospital cardiac arrests. The median age in both groups combined was 52 years. ECMO was able to be established in 24 of those 26 patients. Two of the patients did not go on pump, and I discussed that earlier, but both of those patients survived. Return of spontaneous circulation occurred in 25 of 26, or 96% of the patients, and 13 of them were able to be weaned from ECMO support. Ultimately able to be discharged from the hospital, neurologically intact, and that is with a CPC score of one. That amounts to a 54% winner rate if you're including and combining in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. This is actually a fairly remarkable result. So then the question comes down to why such good outcomes? While these patient-oriented outcomes, discharged, neurologically intact, are fairly remarkable when you compare them to the world's literature right now, you gotta wonder why their outcomes are so damn good. Maybe this is just too small of a sample size. Was it because they grouped the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and the in-hospital cardiac arrest groups together? Possibly. Or was it the bundle? Was it rapid transport on a mechanical circulatory device, intra-arrest cooling, rapid implementation of CPR, followed by cath lab? And was that the thing that makes everything so much better? Is it this amazing bundle? Still not entirely clear. And then you got to ask yourself, which of these therapies really made the difference? Was it the ECMO? Was it the cooling intra-arrest pre-hospital? Was it the load and go EMS policy where mechanical chest compression devices were used? Next comes the question about mechanical chest compression devices in general. Most of us know that there are three relatively big studies done recently that show no benefit of mechanical chest compression devices over good human CPR. But for those of us who do resuscitation on a regular basis, and for those of us who have had some experience using these mechanical chest compression devices, we are all big fans of this device for a whole bunch of reasons. In this particular case, I think it's reasonable to say 
that chest compressions being done in the back of an ambulance and during loading, transporting, and transitioning the patient to the hospital gurney once the patient arrived were all probably better chest compressions than could be done by a human. I would therefore make a potential argument that in this case, the mechanical chest compression device may have been the biggest sole factor here that made the biggest difference. However, one could argue that the interest cooling was, one could argue ECMO made the difference because really what they're doing, and finally to discuss this, ECMO, they're doing this in a rapidly deployed fashion. They have a whole protocol set up. They're protocol from the time the patient hits the door to the time the ECMO cannulas are in and the pump is on is all completely streamlined. We at our facility have made every attempt to make that happen as well. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes not so much. But in my opinion, here is what I think. Have any of you ever heard of a guy named Felix Baumgartner? This guy, again from Australia, this is an Australian skydiver. He is a stuntman. He's a base jumper. And in 2012, he jumped out of the Red Bull Stratus. This was basically a space capsule that was pulled into the sky by a helium balloon. This thing was pulled 24 miles into the sky. And when Felix jumped out of that in a pressurized suit, he broke three records. Number one, the exit altitude of 24 miles in the sky. Number two, he hit a maximal vertical speed of 843 plus miles per hour. And thirdly, he broke the vertical distance of free fall at 119,431 feet. Now, why am I bringing this up now? Because the only way that Baumgartner could get up into the sky, get that high, was based on all the steps that it took to get him there. He had pressurized suits. He had the highest technology equipment available to him. He was drawn into the sky using a helium balloon and a pressurized capsule, basically space flight by a balloon. With all that stuff going on, Baumgartner could not have landed on the ground safely without a technologic device that was very simple and has been around for decades. And that is the parachute that caused him to land safely on the ground. And I would argue that in this particular case, the mechanical circulatory devices, the excellent CPR, the intra-arrest cooling, the critical care that happened, the preparation and management of the Alfred doctors in handling these patients when they hit the door are all equivalent to the preparation that went into the effect to get Baumgartner up into the sky. Baumgartner fell to the ground at 843.6 miles per hour. And the thing, the simple thing that allowed him to land safely on the ground was that parachute. And I would argue that ECMO, something that's been around now for decades, allowed the Alfred Docks to get this patient to the cath lab in a similar fashion. This is how we use it. It's a bridge. It's a temporary bridge. All right, great stuff. So we had the opportunity to ask Stephen Bernard a few more questions at the end of our discussion last week. And we thought we would include them here because they really are poignant as far as what's going on down there in Australia and how they're doing. So here we go. Question number one. I would say in our experience, number one cause of death on our eCPR patients is clearly the neurologic devastation that comes from the prolonged arrest. But number two and maybe number three would be 
the pulmonary edema problem that we get and has become such a problem at days four and five on eCPR. Uh, have you guys had, would you say, I mean, it's hard to d- describe this versus what other hospitals have had, but has this been a problem for you as well? No, look, it hasn't. Uh, I, I guess our experience has been that if the heart starts up again and uh, uh, works pretty well, you know, we can we can pull the fluid off again pretty quickly, you know, on uh, hemofiltration uh, if that was needed. Uh, yeah, we'd be pretty relaxed about uh, the question of putting the fluid in. You can pull it out pretty quickly if you like. Great, great, great. And then just sir, also on in that same vein is you said that these patients tend to do quite well. There's like two different categories, either the patient that does really terrible, and then but a number of these patients do quite well. One of the things that we have seen in almost every one of our patients, even the survivors, is we get this post-ECPR, we place the cannulas, we put them on the pump, they get a fantastic blood pressure, and then over the course of the next couple hours, their blood pressure tanks. We've thought this to be secondary to some of the reperfusion injury, maybe some of the cytokines that have started to act on the heart. But I'm wondering if you are having that same experience where you get a great blood pressure post-ECPR and then it starts to do poorly thereafter. Yeah, look, that really has been our leading cause of death. It's really unable to be supported. As opposed to the idea of getting to day four, day five and having to prognosticate on a patient with a stable uh, uh, hemodynamics and, in fact, coming off ECMO, but, you know, that difficult neurologic prognostication, we have that much less. It's really more exactly as you say. We They, they go on to three litres of flow, go to the cath lab, have something done, uh, and then go to the ICU and then we see a map of, you know, 50, 40, 30 despite... Yeah huge presser dose, uh, coagulopathy, and to be honest, we don't hang around for too long in that situation. We know that whatever the reperfusion injury, there's probably gut ischemia, there's just that whole cascade of damage. Uh, We just know that person hasn't got over the line. We provide comfort care uh, pretty early on in that situation. Uh, I would say, if I could just interrupt, uh, we've had two patients with significant bleeding. one from a liver laceration. These are injuries we didn't see much before. Prolonged chest compressions, even on a machine, can cause an injury. And uh, we've had a liver laceration who went to laparotomy and had a lot of blood products. And then more recently, a big hemothorax with ongoing bleeding. And what we've decided as a group really with that is we'll, we'll call it quits on that patient as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that uh, if you start pouring in litres and litres of blood products uh, in this patient who's already uh, got a big hurdle to uh, overcome, we think, look, we're, we're wasting precious resources there and uh, it either goes well, but if it's going badly, we've all got to just uh, stand around and, uh, and recognise this and uh, be realistic about it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So next up, Zach asked Dr. Bernard about whether or not you shock a patient who's on ECMO. Here we go. All right, last question here. And I, and I may have misinterpreted this, but um, dear, after you place them on ECMO, are you shocking them if they're in VF or are you not? Now, by now, they've usually had 20-odd shocks or more. 
If they're still in VFib, we'll get a 12 lead ECG or EKG, as you say, uh, just because uh, it's something you hardly ever see in your life now, a 12 lead with <laughs> just fibrillating. No, no, if they've had 20 shocks and they've gone nowhere, we'll um, get them onto ECMO uh, and get them to the cath lab. They've got to have an artery opened. As I say, that channelopathy group where we know, well, look, it's just a primary arrhythmia. I think you've uh, heard me, I think you sent an email and you've heard me speak. Uh, We'd go through, you've got options. Uh, We'd go through the drugs that we have available in Australia, which is amiodarone. Lignocaine probably still has a role. If we can find some procainamide or procainamide, I think, as you would say there, we try a beta blocker. Uh, Esmolol has been written up uh, recently in resuscitation as being a possible option. Um, We have had two patients where a cardiologist with a special interest in uh, tachyarrhythmias uh, has been contacted and suggested isoprenaline and, look, we don't know, but right on the end of that needle, you know, a minute later, both those patients flicked into a, a sinus rhythm. Uh, so, you know, I've mentioned that in a previous podcast and uh, it might turn out to be a coincidence. Uh, uh, it might turn out beta blocker is better. But that's another group of, uh, that's another area that now that, you know, you've got someone on eCPR, you've got options, you've got some time and, you uh, you know, it's a matter of just working your way through available antiarrhythmics and seeing if you can uh, cardiovert them as well. Of course, uh, right off, that priority is to just make sure the coronary arteries are okay. Yeah, so in wrapping up, in his final comments, Dr. Bernard offers up their Alfred protocol, which is version 13. That will be posted to the website. And then finally, Dr. Bernard talks to us a little bit about future considerations and where we think we're going. Oh well, look. I think uh, yeah, if they'd uh, we've uh, with the permission of our hospital, uh, we've uh, got our protocol for you. Um, we're very happy to have it on your website. Uh, obviously, people will adapt it uh, for their own institution as they see fit. And uh, uh, but we welcome uh, people to uh, pick it up and uh, uh, and use it. Um, and I think over. The next uh, couple of years, we'll see fi- more fine-tuning. I, I think uh, as, uh, uh, you know, a couple of areas that we think we can improve things, I'm particularly interested in the oxygen. We currently reperfuse with 100% oxygen running mm-hmm. through the oxygenator. Uh, another challenging area will be, well, is that too much, much reperfusion yeah. injury? Uh, should we blend or even have air? Yeah. Uh, should So that, that'll be something, uh, the, the question of the, the uh, cooling. And, of course, we're all waiting for some sort of drug that might work in reperfusion injury. Um, if something along those lines comes up, then, you know, we'll obviously get more winners. Uh, and, look, just seeing, I guess, uh, people trying this and uh, reporting, uh, I think at the moment, uh, also uh, what their results are like. And I guess, you know, people then get together, uh, regulate meetings to uh, – see if they can fine-tune their, uh, their, their processes. So this puts another episode of the ED ECMO podcasts in the books. This has been episode 15, a discussion of the CHEER trial, a wrap-up of our discussion with Dr. Stephen Bernard. My friends, thank you for joining us once again in this podcast. 
On behalf of Dr. Shiner, we thank Stephen Bernard for coming on the podcast and discussing these exciting components of the cheer trial and where we're going forward. This is Joe Belezzo for the ED ECMO podcast. We're signing out. <laughs>